0: Hey, 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 Talking Joe fans, it's Mark here, and we have got another sketchbook original art episode. As always, this is very visual intensive, so uh, I would suggest that if you can, head on over to the Talking Joe YouTube channel where you can see the full visuals for this episode. Uh, But if not, then you're welcome to listen to just the audio version only. And have our words generate images in your own imagination. Or you can also simply head on over to patreon.com slash talkingjoe and find the relevant post, the Chuck Costa Sketch Art post, uh, Well, I will have posted a PDF of the art that we are discussing that you can also look at. Uh, So you're in for a treat today. We are talking to Chuck Costas, who, without exaggeration, has one of the greatest collections of G.I. Joe original art ever assembled. Uh, So, yeah, relax, sit back, and listen to the episode as Tim and I talk to the man himself, Chuck Costas.
1: Live from the Talking Joe studios, Talking Joe. seem normal.
0: Hey, 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 welcome to Talking Joe live stream. Looking at original art again, and today we are very excited because we have a special guest with an incredible collection. It is Chuck Costas, and joining me to talk about it will be Tim Finn. So, I'm going to inter- put him into the stream. Here's Tim.
1: Hello, Mark, and hello, streamers. Is that is that the word <laughs> for people watching this? Hello, hey. live streamers and uh and the people,
0: internets people watching all of the internets
1: after thanks for joining us
0: everyone now uh chuck might not realize this but uh on this show when we have a special guest i have to make a jingle for them and here, <laughs> here's Chuck's. this guy this guy chuck this guy, this
2: guy, Chuck, we're in luck. He's no smock. It's this guy, this guy, Chuck. Wow. Here that, he is. That, that this amazes guy, amazes me. That, I think we just end the show there. That's it. <laughs> Disco Duck, one of my favorite uh, Rick D songs. <laughs> You're going way back there from back in the day. Good but, memory. Uh, yeah. Yes, and that picture that you found of me with the wookiee also very nice, but uh, What a wookiee. We're talking Joe today though. We're talking <laughs>
0: exactly. Joe. Exactly. Yeah, so and specifically your, your amazing collection, a few highlights, you know, from from what it it selecting the highlights must have been a task because I know that you've got an incredible selection and just looking even behind you it's it's a museum. Yeah, all
2: stuff we, you know, <laughs> we don't have time to talk about all this today. But I figured I would decorate for the occasion today and sort of make sure that the my, my wife is out of town, so I could do whatever I want with the basics. Go crazy today, so.
0: if I if I zoom in on you, Chuck. Maybe you can just give a a few seconds guided tour of what is actually behind you there because it is super cool.
2: Uh, sure. I'll start, uh, I guess it's reverse over here. I'll start over in this corner, which is, uh, I, I also assigned, I guess my day job is I work for a p- company called prop store. Um, I, I was a consultant for many years. And after I sort of left that career, I decided, what do I really want to do? I moved out. I'd already moved out to LA and said, I'd love to be in the movie prop business. And so, um, uh, you know, prior to that, though, I was a customer, and one of the auctions that Prop Store held was the GI Joe Rise of Cobra auction a few years ago. So I, um, you know, despite what people think of the movie, I think people love it and, and hate it relative to it. But for me, it was just a great way of translating the GI Joe world into the real world. And uh, I have a, a few different swords. These are from both uh, Rise of Cobra as well as Retaliation. Um, you know, Storm Shadow, and then two different swords from uh, Snake Eyes. There. Uh, a couple of the Neo Viper helmets, as well as one of the bombs, uh, one of the Mars bombs there that uh, that Storm Shadow launches, and you remember with the nanomites inside there. So very, very cool. Uh, and then over there in the corner is also Snake Eyes, uh, the Arctic version of Snake Eyes, sort of reminiscent of G.I. Joe 2. Uh, and then over in the other corner, we've got uh, the, the Scarlet costume, and then one of the, the Mars briefcases that, that held oh, the nanobombs cool. inside there. So for those that are movie fans... And I'll show decked out today in one of the jackets from the movie <laughs> as well. You know, if, if you, how how better way to enjoy movie props and costumes than to to wear them around? So, uh, but if anybody else wants there, I, I think we do actually have some on propstore.com. So if you're a Joe fan, uh, and you want one of these. There's a little plug. Yeah. Tim? Chuck, do
1: you have your tickets for Snake Eyes? And what clothing will you wear to that <laughs>
2: uh, You know, I don't think I'm going to be wearing a Snake Eyes costume. It's a little bit form-fitting, and I've uh, eaten a few too many pies as of <laughs> lately. But, uh, you know, I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to see. I, you know, I might just go as a normal guy. I don't know. <laughs> I am looking forward. I heard great things about the new Snake Eyes film. So lo- really looking forward to seeing what's going on with that. And then in the background, you'll see some artwork. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about my relationship with Mike Zek over the years. But uh, you know, one of the things I had the pleasure of doing as being as one of the original GI Joe art collectors is I I I, I met Mike Zek back in 1986, and started buying GI Joe covers from him because that was really my favorite thing to do. Nobody else seemed to want them at the time, um, and so month to month, Mike would just offer me different covers, and uh, you know, as he was drawing them. And in fact, I would talk to him over the phone and. He would tell me what he was, what was on the drawing board that day, and uh, you know, I remember GI Joe Special Missions One when that was coming out. He was sort of describing coming over the over the ship and, and what he was drawing there. So some special memories in that, but some covers that, that I acquired from Mike over the years, uh, the GI Joe thirty nine, excuse me, the fifty two. The I can't really see all these things because you have to go to the reverse angle here on things, but um, I will get out of the way. So you got the thirty nine, the fifty two. <laughs> Uh, and then you've got Special missions 2 and Special missions 4, when I switch over to the other side. And then a very special piece, which is the GI Joe yearbook number three. And um, we'll talk also, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about the, the exhibit of my exec art that I'm going to be helping to host later on this year at the Ringling College of Art and Design. That's going to be starting on October 18th through December 10th, 2021. So if you get a chance to be in Sarasota, Florida, uh, you can see all those pieces live as well as a whole host of other G.I. Joe art. Uh, And uh, it's actually being Hasbro is officially sort of giving us the license to uh, to show these things. So I think it's a great opportunity for Joe fans as well as fans of Mike Zach to see some some great artwork that Mike's done over the years.
0: Excellent. And yeah, if you want to ever want to watch to see the cover uh, of the everyone's that features the first appearance of everyone's favorite character, Sarawak Sally, then uh, (laughs) that's the cover um we just discussed uh the latest issue which uh, uh i don't know if you've read it yet Co- uh, chuck but um features the, the return of uh of a character only ever seen in special missions 4 and
2: uh not i, I not did not know that they were, that they were going into the way back machine on that but uh you know those october guard stories were over some of was always some of my favorite ones um and that was a i always just love the cover on that the upside down um you know, being caught in a tree. And, and I just thought the oh, angle yeah. on that particular one was pretty spectacular. But anyway, that's, I that's have within a, the room today. It will not be there later today, but, and it will. And when my wife gets home and it'll be back the way it was. <laughs> I,
1: I have a Chuck, I have a kickoff question, which is, um, what is the first piece of comic art that you bought? And what was your, how did you sort of come to that decision that you, had there been a co- collectors in your family? Was this the natural outgrowth from comics, or how, where, and what, and how?
2: Yeah, um, I guess you know, sort of painting the picture. And I'm sure folks that are watching this may have similar experiences. I grew up in the Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is right outside Washington, D.C. Me too. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that, Tim. Um, yeah, and, and I think the, the the culture in D.C. or we had a great comic book. Uh, or I guess convention schedule that was going on. Every month you could go to, there was pretty much two to go to. There was a Jubilee convention and there was a creation, no, but the creation was the third and then there was serendipity as well. So we only really had three major conventions that were rotating through the DC area, whether you're on the Virginia side or the Maryland side, or sometimes occasionally in DC itself. But as part of that, they would always have guests there, and I think that was something that was maybe a little different than some of the other conventions around uh, the country. Is that we always had a plethora of guests, and so in the, you know, I'd always see people come through. We had John Romita Jr., we had uh, we had uh, Mike Zek came through at some point, Ron Wilson. Uh, but at one point, I you know, I sort of struck up a conversation with Rich Rankin, who may people may not know, he was the inker uh, that was working with Bill Willingham on the Elementals. And really, you know, got to know him and liked him and, you know, decided that one day, I think it was 1985, to, to buy a piece of artwork. Uh, and it was the first piece I bought was an Elementals 2, page one, which was, frankly, from an art collector's perspective, probably not the best page to buy. It was just a, a picture of the FBI Seattle building no characters on it whatsoever but I just thought it was so well drawn that and, and it was just a great thing to put on the wall that I, I had to say you know that that was the first piece. So it was I think I think Rich was charging ten dollars I think he gave me a discount and sold it to me for five dollars um, and that you know but you know comic books at the time were what 75 cents 60 cents something like that. So, uh, you know, it's still a little bit more than than, than mm-hmm. buying just a single comic book. So uh, that was my first investment, Tim. I mean, it was in and I think it went from there. But for me, it was a bit early on. It was about creating a connection with the artists because you couldn't really find it wasn't their eBay wasn't around and you couldn't find a, a real large selection of older art at these conventions. It was really comic books at those and then whatever the, the artist of the day sort of brought with them. And then you'd have a chance to buy things from them.
1: I remember being confused at my third or fourth convention in 1990 that there was a dealer selling original art. Uh, It's like the cover to Wolverine number 21 or 22, right? Where it's all yellow and Wolverine's just arms are popping out of the spore by John Byrne. Yep. And it was much larger than the comic and it was black and white. And I just didn't understand. (laughs) And it was in this, you know, big leather portfolio, and uh, it was familiar and foreign at the same time. It was sort of enchanting and a little off-putting and scary at the same time. And then it had a price on it, which I probably didn't understand because probably a piece of tape on the top right that said something like one eight zero. It's like I don't understand this. All none, <laughs> n- none of these cues, none of these cues make sense to me. Like, what is this object, and why are people interested in it, and why do I want to get closer, but also? it's, it's sort of weird.
2: Well, you know, I think I was always a a struggling artist as a kid. I think I I, I liked to, I figured out I liked to draw. And so I I think I knew what it was. And I respected the fact that these, you know, I knew there had to be a piece of art out there. Um, Didn't know a lot about the creative process. And I guess collecting original art sort of helped educate me about how, you know, that there could be a different penciler from an inker, there could be, you know, theoretically a separate set of pencils from a, a separate set of inks, and then the colorists uh, came in after the fact, and so understanding that process, I was educated, there, you know, there weren't a lot of books on that stuff at the time, I think a little bit later on, um, you know, how to draw, well, I guess there was always how to draw comics the marble way, which was a, sort of the classic John Buscema book out there, and, you know, I picked up a copy of that, and I think that really explained it to me, but I, I didn't pick that up probably until after I had uh, discovered original artwork. And then there was the Marvel tryout book that came out as well, so that, that you could see the large pages. It actually came with official sort of Marvel stamp pages, so if you wanted to try your hand at becoming an artist, uh, that was the way in the 80s, I think, of that most people... You know, sort of dream. You know, uh, played out their dreams and and could test their skills on whether or not they were a good enough artist to actually make it into the world of Marvel. I never, I, I got one of those as a Christmas present one year, but I was just, you know, as a collector, I was like, oh, I, I don't want to actually touch any of the pages and and mess it up, so I'll, I'll just leave <laughs> it in mint condition. So um, yeah. it, it, it stayed, it stayed, it stayed intact. And and uh, but it was funny. Years later, as I was I was honing my skills, uh, Mike Zek decided. Uh, you know, he, he would he he would try to help me out, and I guess what he had done with other artists, and he was like. I will send you photocopies of the original pencils. So if you want to practice inking those, so he sent me the the pencils to Punisher number one, and again I was just kind of like, oh, these are these kind of look nice as is. I don't know if I want to if I want to even get vellum out and start start inking these things. So I still have the pencils, you know. So thank you, Mike, and I have the sticky from from the 90s, I think, uh, when he sent those to me. But uh, uh, always a little bit of a reluctant artist and never really got my portfolio together to the show Marvel, uh, what I could do. But maybe one day, maybe one day.
1: <laughs> the other change besides uh, eBay or the internet, um, sort of people being familiar with comic art or being having access to purchase it, um, there are many more places where comic art is displayed nowadays in museums and galleries Whereas in the 80s, there were a few shows or some art might get displayed, not just tried to be sold at conventions. But I feel like it's pretty common nowadays if you're if you're near a certain college or university gallery in a major city, you know, every year or two, there's going to be some kind of show that incorporates original comic art. If not, that is the show.
2: Yeah and 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 for those that may have gone to the Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibit that's traveling the country I think right now it's in Chicago um that is really the core focus it shows movie props like the ones I have floating around here side by side with the original artwork showing sort of the origins of that to give people greater insights into the creative process and really the fact that this did exist that there were artists behind this there was somebody actually you know sketching these things out to create these from a blank piece of paper and that is really the core of the exhibit. And that's something I know I'm, I'm contributing some of my non-GI Joe stuff to, to that exhibit as it travels the country. But I've also heard, uh, I mean, here in Los Angeles, and there's a number of museums that are starting up this year. You've, of course, got the Academy Museum that's about to open. But you also have the Lucas Museum. And the Lucas Museum has has uh, come out and said that there will be a section dedicated to comic art. And I think that's really exciting because they're really focused on telling the narrative story and sort of ha- how that's evolved in different forms of that over the years. And obviously movies and everybody expects to see, you know, Indiana Jones and Star Wars there. But I think, you know, if you if you hear the stories, obviously Norman Rockwell was a big influence on uh, Lucas, but I think comic art was also one of the things he early, early on collected, uh, but also took inspiration from. So it's gonna be great to see what collection they have there. And of course the Library of Congress, uh, if, if you are in the Washington, D.C. area or can stop by there, has you know a pretty good selection that people have donated, including the original artwork to uh, Amazing Fantasy 15, which is, frankly, it, it is a sort of a life-changing experience if you can hold all those pages in your hand of the first appearance of Spider-Man and just page through them and see all the changes that they've made. And I think that's what's, what's crazy about original artwork is sometimes, and we'll, we'll see some pages here, where the original concept was changed on the fly. Um we're not talking Transformers today, but, you know, if you look at the original art pages for Transformers, number one, half those pages have I have pages that have completely different dialogue that have different scenes. They were changing it on the fly uh, and they were cutting the pages up and pasting things different down because they, they only had a month to really get that book out. And that the origins of the Transformers as well were, were created uh, you know, by a, a group of folks over at Marvel and I guess the original concepts uh, didn't fly in some cases, so they had to they had to change it around very quickly. And you'll you'll see a lot of that with GI Joe, and some of the pages we'll show today as well. Great. <laughs> I
0: was going <gonna, laughs> to say, um, Chuck. I guess um, the the focus of of this this these kinds of live streams. We've done a few of these these now. We and we've seen people's. Uh, sort of sketches that they've had done at, you know, more on the fly at, on, on, at conventions, the quicker pieces. We've seen the sort of the, you know, commissions and sometimes very ambitious big commissions. And we've seen uh, original art. And then we've also seen things like production art and uh, other sort of uh, curiosities in the sort of G.I. Joe world. Um, it it, see, it seems like you've gravitated more towards, uh, I guess, the original art that we'd see in the actual book but perhaps would that be fair to to say is that that that's kind of what you've gravitated to towards in both your interest and in your uh collections that you've less less sort of in, interested in going kind of down uh, commission route
2: that's yeah I think. I think uh you know i think my my focus has been really those first 50 issues of gi joe because those are the ones that i devoutly read uh, I think after that, it trickled off a little bit, as well as, say, the Mike Zeck, uh, I guess Mike Zach continued on to, a, to about issue 65 in the regular series and then the one through eight of the special mission series. So really, my relationship, I think, with Zach in, in those uh, sort of those, those middle 80s years was really sort of my, it became a tie to G.I. Joe. Um, but over the years, I've also gotten to know, you know, I would we'll talk about Herb Trimpey. I had a very you know great relationship with Herb. Uh, and really was, you know, glad to get to know him. Um, uh, you know, and then Mike Vosberg, I've also been, I think I, you guys may have seen the Mike Vossberg uh, live stream I did recently to help him mm-hmm. sell some of his artwork. Uh, but Mike and I have been, have known each other over 20 years as well and just had some great friendships with these folks. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's odd being when you have sort of deep relationships with folks, getting commissions from them is probably... The the last thing on your mind because you see all the other people that really want to get commissions and and I feel like they should get them because I've mm-hmm. had the pleasure of really getting to know these people and that's what they've given back to me um, you know but I've really connected with those early Joe stories and I guess when I assembled my collection was really looking at you know when I started this nobody really cared about the Joe artwork nobody really cared about those early things uh, and I went out of my way to to go and and find some of that stuff when nobody else was looking for it. And now it, it, you know, I almost look at it as it, it, it's the history of the GI Joe characters, and the collection that I have really sort of helps tell those those the story of the early Joes. If you want to look at it that way, now I do have a couple pieces, and we'll talk about a couple pieces from later Joe artists. And I guess not nothing as recent as the last even ten years, but uh, I do have an appreciation when I do see uh, folks like David Michael Beck who who sort of you know, put their own spin on drawing some of that, and I do mm-hmm. think there's some great. Uh, artists that are doing it but uh, as far as my collecting i've had to sort of focus in my lane and and stick with the early joe joe quote-unquote historic stuff if you want to look at it that way
0: okay great it feels like we're ready to start looking at some art i'll just say that if people want to l- send us comments um please do we'll see see those and so if you've got any questions or comments as you're going al- as we're going along please feel free to to chuck them our way so let's uh, do this, and we'll get started. So I,
2: I like how you threw the chuck in there. It, it goes nicely with your theme song, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: Here
2: we go. Here's number one. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Tim, back to your question around sort of the original, sort of me started, starting with uh, getting started collecting original art, um, prior to buy, buying my first piece of artwork, I actually got a free sketch, and this is the free sketch that I got from Larry Hammer. Uh, this I think was done in January of 1985. I remember, I remember being kind of upset at the time. Cause I was like, Oh, if it had only been like a week earlier, he would have, he would have signed it 1984 as opposed to 1985 on this. Um, and I think that was around the time GI Joe 33 had come out, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I, you know, again, one of those Washington DC shows, I believe it was in Arlington or in Crystal city, Virginia. It was a, uh, it was a show over there and Larry Hamill was the guest. And, um, a friend of mine and I, I think I had a table and I was maybe set up next to Larry. Uh, Cause I was back in the day. I used to just buy comic collections and sell. them. that was sort of my part-time job. Mm-hmm. And we got stuck next to Larry for the entire show. And my friend, frankly was a huge GI Joe collector. He loved the toys. He loved everything about GI Joe. And I, at the time, frankly, didn't know a lot about GI Joe. Um, I, this was <laughs> sort of my first exposure. So I was kind of the novice. He was the, the Joe diehard. And you know, I was like, "Well, should we, you know, just talk to Larry throughout the show?" And so I really got that was my appreciation was was through just meeting Larry Hama. And at the time, I didn't quite understand the difference between writer and artist and all that. And uh, although Larry was well known for, I guess, writing and creating the characters, I, I didn't quite understand it. I just assumed he just drew GI Joe. And so he's like, "Hey, if you guys, you know, what, what sketches do you want? I'm happy to draw you a sketch." And so I chose Scarlet. My friend chose uh, Stalker. And so each of them was drawn on this little notepad, as you can see, the the little, you know, the, the little uh, divots from from coming out of his notepad there. But he drew me this fantastic sketch of of uh, of Scarlet. And, you know, I was just amazed that somebody could just sort of whip this up so quickly. And you know, Larry was the nicest guy to talk to that day. He was he really became a hero, uh, taking the time. I think I was maybe 14 at the time. So he, you know, taking the time to talk to some teenage kids, you know, for the entire day and then doing free sketches for us was. You know, going over and above in my book, and you know, uh, for me, it was like, "Wow, this! I guess I should start reading these GI Joe comics." Um, <laughs> and that was, and what then a, that, that was that. Now, did I know he had done GI Joe twenty one and twenty six? No, not really. I mean, I knew GI Joe comics were becoming popular, uh, but I hadn't really read them at the time. So this this got me. This sketch got me not only into appreciating original comic book art, but also the the Joes themselves.
1: Do you? What an introduction yeah Uh, indeed uh chuck do you have a recollection of um there being a line for people to get signatures autographs from from Uh Hama?
2: no it was literally i don't think any uh, as popular as gi joe it was becoming at the time and that was when the book was really sort of taking off from a a sales and publication you know i think occasional people would come over but it wasn't that there was you know there weren't people with stacks of gi joe books to get signed and the idea of doing free sketches or, you know, I think the idea of paying for sketches at the time was, was, was kind of crazy. No, there there really wasn't a line. So that really allowed us to spend almost the entire day talking to Larry. So, and that was the greatest thing.
1: I note here that um, this doesn't look much different from Hama's sketches that we see from conventions of the last three, five, 10 years, right? He has this looseness yeah. when he's sketching a drawing like this or laying out a page either for himself or for the penciler or inker. And you know, usually when you look at an artist uh, 40 years later, uh, the stuff looks really different. And this looks just a tiny bit different.
2: Yeah, the, I, I think the way he draws uh, Scarlet's eyes—you know—usually he's got more of an eyelash to it nowadays, uh, and there might be some. But I think that the basic sort of we call this breakdown style, and, and you know, I think what you see from this is this is his style, and and you have to remember, Larry started, although he was a writer, he was working on Iron Fist uh, for Marvel Premiere, I believe it was his first book back in the '70s. So right as soon as the second issue of of Iron Fist that had come out, Marvel pre, uh, Premiere sixteen was an issue that that Larry worked on. And he was also um, a protege or worked with uh, Neil Adams. And so I think he was working alongside that. But when you see this this style and you realize, you know, he drew G.I. Joe 21 and 26 completely, it was in this style. And I think you, you can also appreciate how much uh, Steve Lealoha had really contributed to finalizing that. And I think if you look at those books, it actually gives him credit for either breakdowns or layouts or something like that. Because his mm-hmm. style is a lot looser and, and Marvel did differentiate, um, you know, sort of the credits they would give based on the sort of the tightness of the pencil style.
1: And the but pay the, rate.
2: Yeah. And the pay rate, I guess, along with that on how much you had to tighten it up. But, you know, for me, it also showed, like I said, there was this great synergy. And I don't think people give enough credit to Steve Lealoha for really finishing G.I. Joe 21 and 26 and, and, and bringing it about. To, to what we remember and making that those two issues really a classic thing I think they really worked very well together uh, and complemented each other based on on Larry's uh drawing style sure yeah okay Shall we so that, went, that was the beginning of the Joe's yes or my, my
0: <laughs> okay do you want to segue into into the next one.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, I think with that, I've uh, as part of my collection, I have put a stronger focus on Scarlet. You know, having that initial uh, tie to that getting that sketch with Larry. So years ago, Larry brought out, um, and this may have been, and Tim, you may remember, it may have been fifteen years ago that that, there, that Larry started going into his personal collection and selling some things. And some of the things that he brought out were these Fury Force drawings. And a lot of you know, discussion around what Fury Force was, how did it contribute to the future of the Joes? And I'd always heard that, uh, I think L- Layla Galil, I believe is the pronunciation of this, but, or Lila Galil, um, that she was the sort of prototype for Scarlet. And when you see this sketch, there were, there were a, there's a team sketch out there that shows all the Joes together, but this was the detailed shot of just Lila. Um, that was part of the set that he had done. And, you know, it does look a little bit like Scarlet. So when you look at it and, uh, it, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some similarities between what you do. I guess it's partly that it's female, but also because it's also Larry's rougher style, at least with the face there, um, you know, hard to get a real sense of, you know, is this Scarlet, is this not Scarlet? And, and there are some things that, you know, Larry has gone out there and said that, you know, he did use aspects of Lila when he was coming up with Scarlet. But, you know, we'll come up on some other pieces in just a second here um, that makes me think. So this is dated 1981. And, uh, you know, the, the the idea for those that don't know around Fury Force, and correct me if I'm wrong, since you guys also probably know more about it than I do, is Fury Force was something that they were working on, which was supposed to be the son of Nick Fury and creating a team over at Marvel uh, that was going to sort of carry on the tradition of what what Nick Fury had done. And they had created these sets of characters, and there was a there was a character that looked very much like Snake Eyes. There was, was a character that very much looked like that. So there were some concepts that definitely went across to GI Joe. Uh, but the question is, from a visual perspective, how much of this? It's always been a question in my mind: is you know, was this was was were these sketches the sort of impetus of of what we saw for GI Joe? And I guess we'll come across some other ones in just a second that sort of help fill out the story, at least in my mind, as to, to tell me that, although, you know, he did create Lila, probably not necessarily the visual for this visual was the inspiration for what ultimately became Scarlet.
1: The term that you used, right? Like they were working on Fury Force. um, To my thinking, it's more, it was a pitch.
2: Yes. And Larry may have been.
1: Larry may have been working on that pitch for weeks or months, but in total, it's, it's like, uh, six drawings of characters, uh, two drawings of vehicles and a a base. And then there's a, like a, a two page typed document and he pitched it and editorial said no, or editorial said, Hmm, maybe. And then GFJ came along. (laughs) So, um, once or twice, you know, someone has like a blog post, or just sort of out there on the internet, someone someone uses this this sort of timing or this phrase. It's like, oh, like, GI Joe was almost Fury Force, or like Snake Eyes maybe was going to have a hood. It's like, it's it's much more sort of divergent than that.
2: Um, I would agree, and I think you know, I, I well, I guess when we get to the next one, I did talk to Larry about this. And get his perspective at one point when we, we sat down at another convention. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's still interesting to see what was going on because, he, again, given the time, remember there were stories and bizarre adventures where Herb Trimpy had done sort of a, a prototype story for the characters that uh, ultimately became the October Guard. And that, that's a slightly different story. We won't get into that one today. But, you know, there was a lot of just, you know, pitches and short stories that were going on in, in various black and white Marvel magazines and other places. And it was about to be the birth of the limited series that was going on uh, in 1982 over at Marvel as well with Contest of Champions and Wolverine and Hercules and all those other, other things that were going on. So the idea that creators were pitching these these ideas and concepts that could become comics um, you know, wasn't, wasn't far-fetched and it was probably happening all the time. Uh, but just an interesting thing because I mean, interesting to see what sort of happened with Nick Fury as a character, and it would it would have been interesting to see if Nick Nick Fury did have a son, and you know, maybe it still will become something one day. You know, I do think that uh, you know Fury Force is stuck in people's minds for one reason or another, and there's always a chance that uh, the Fury Force may come back.
0: Yeah, it's things as well, like the the specific specific specificity of uh the weaponry and things like that so like the yeah i used you know, to own the all the weapon- that.
2: yeah i used to have all the sketches of that i let there's another local collector here that was is, was interested in those so i let him add those to his collection but uh but yeah the lila one i think for me in the history of scarlet was something that was uh was important to to get and keep and i think it's interesting to showcase as part of uh you know the origin of the the character because i do think um regardless of everything else, there were some concepts that, that Larry was developing in his mind around the character that did translate to ultimately, um, you know, how he had thought about uh, Scarlet.
0: Okay. And then this next image we had included for you, you know, to to talk to the point about actually where the look of Scarlet came from and when.
2: Yes. So yeah, when I talked to Larry and said, hey, was this the, the first thing of uh you know first drawing of scarlet he he basically said no he said the look and feel was all ron rudat and so ron rudat's designs for the characters were really what everything was based off of i created the you know dossiers and all and sort of the the story behind the characters but he gave you know credit to ron for designing all this and and again looking at the dates and it's interesting that larry did date the other drawing 1981 this you know ron rudat's drawings and this is something i took from uh, and I, I don't own this piece for anybody that, that's interested. This was off of uh, um, the toys that made us. But Ron Rudat signed this in 1980, and you see all the different characters there for the toy designs, uh, and the, there's Scarlet at the end. So she definitely had the look and, and feel of the toy itself, and that's what you know. Not only Larry was looking at, but you know Herb and other folks as they were they were looking at the characters. This, these were the original designs for the characters, and this is the original Scarlet, at least. There may have been other scarlets that he that Ron drew as well, but his his were the designs that that really defined the the Scarlet character.
1: It's worth remembering with the creation of Scarlet that uh, if you have a team of men with one woman <laughs> in 1982, and this is going to be a toy, this is going to be uh, a comic, and there's an eye that this might be television. Um, out of all the difference. Types and colors and costume combinations you could come up with for this woman—it's uh, pretty narrow. What what several comics and toy and marketing and later animation people would pick. And so part of uh, part of what I find so fun about sort of Rudat creates the visual and uh, is that it, it is it is coincidental that. Larry has this female character on this team that he's been pitching, that he had pitched to Marvel. And, um, you know, they don't look alike because Hama had seen these early uh, Scarlet drawings from Rudette. Right. They look alike because it's like, well, she's not going to have some crazy helmet where you can't see her face. She's probably not going to have a buzz cut. Um, and, and, like, what are the things in culture that are influencing design in 1980, 81, 82, you know, it's like Star Wars and Vietnam. And, Sarah
2: Fawcett, you know, there was the <laughs> flowing yeah, hair. Yeah,
1: you know? yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, if you had, and I, I, I don't say this in any way to diminish what Rudat or Hama did, but if you were to take like a room full of um, of artists and writers and designers and in 1980, and you're like, come up with a woman to join this action team, you know, it's like, there's only so many permutations that are likely.
2: Yeah. It, it, that reminds me of an interesting story that my exec told me about the, the origins of the black costume Spider-Man, which is, you know, there's a, a rumor out there that that somebody wrote in a letter and they were the person that, that sort of came up with the idea of the black Spider-Man costume. Totally false. Um, what Mike said is that Shooter came to him one day and said, hey, you need to design a new Spider-Man costume. And Mike was like, well, spiders are black. Um, you know, <laughs> if you have to design a costume, it's pretty obvious that it, and you're starting from scratch. If you were to design a spider costume, it probably should be black. And he really designed it from there. So there really was no, as much as other people want to take credit for it, there, there really wasn't that conversation of like the direction of like, Hey, we got this great idea from a reader but, uh, on doing that.
1: But quiz co- coincidentally, there was a letter, right? And then last year, Marvel commissioned a story where they had, uh, was it like, Roger Stern and Rick Leonardo do a story as if that version, sorry, this is a tangent.
2: Yeah. Um, I I, I don't know if they did do that, but again, I've talked to Mike and and, and Jim and it's, and again, it was, you know, I'm sure at the time people were sending in story ideas all the time and they like to think that they, they did that. But for Mike, who was the person commissioned to design the black costume, you know, and, and Mike's memory on that was pretty good. There was never any discussion that there was something coming from a reader that, you know, and they, they didn't you know purchase it or not. So I think it's over time everything's evolved, and the fact that the black costume has become so important, and and it, 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 as you were saying, I think that was my point, which is coincidentally at the time it's like if you were to create a story, you know, it, it it can all happen, and and other people can have that same idea. It was not brain science brain science to figure out that a black costume Spider Man could you know could exist, or that was a cool design for the costume. Because that's what everybody would have designed at that point in time if you if you gave them a blank slate and said go design a spider costume. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, that's a tangent. So. Scarlet, uh,
1: <laughs> <G. R>. Joe. <laughs> uh, what's the next slide, Mark?
0: Yeah, it's we're on the Scarlet uh, thread. So, yeah, let's so, hear about this.
2: Yeah. So again, when when Larry had uh, you know decided decided to part with things, some of the very cool things he parted with were his original hand typed uh, dossiers for each of the characters. So this is really Larry putting, you know, the first thoughts together as to who these characters were. And what's really cool is to see early 1980s, you know, corrections, cause he was using a typewriter that didn't even have the correction function. Yeah. You, you couldn't do it on a computer. And so you see these handwritten, uh, corrections on, you know, with typos that were in there of that. Um, but, you know, I think that this really, as far as Larry's contribution to the characters, this is where it started, which is he, he would put down on paper based on his own experience, um, you know, having been in the military, uh, you know, what what their background should be and really giving insights into those characters and bringing them to life. And this is, and, uh, you know, as we'll show here, this is what's translated into the, the backs of each of the, the, the cards that were on the toys itself. But I think if you scroll down too, it's interesting. I don't know, yeah. you know, I didn't look at this one like, Did they, they, um, this one doesn't have it, but some of them actually quote, like they, they have like other, you know, excerpt from, you know, our carosella. I don't know who that is, but that was probably somebody that Larry knew. Like he was, he was using like Marvel editors and other people as the people that, you know, the, the, these, uh, these excerpts and quotes were coming from. So it is interesting when you see some of those other, um, Dossiers that, uh, that that that's there, but again, just a, you know, a, this is it. You know, this is Larry's creation of Scarlet, and it's also interesting too is that um, if you see at the top number, the number on it is number thirteen. So, you know, Scarlet really was sort of the last mm-hmm. Joe that he went to go create, uh, or at least you know, sort of come up with as far as you know the creation of that. So, I, I think he did him in order, and I assume it was probably based off of Rudat's designs you probably went character by character. I haven't actually done the analysis to figure that out and sort of cross, cross right, right. That In that way. maybe that same, uh, yeah, it could be. I, you know, I actually I have some of the other ones, so it's I, sh- I guess well, I should go back and check that now that I've even sort of thought that, about that.
1: That previous slide where we see all thirteen, that is a photocopy of thirteen separate drawings. That oh, is been, that okay? Yeah, comped onto because I have photocopies of each of those individual drawings. Um, our our viewers probably know this but um hama wrote these to keep the characters um separate for himself in his in his own mind and when hasbro marketing saw these they said oh those are great uh, and Hasbro, Mar- and, and there had been this idea sort of percolating at hasbro to add some kind of value to the toy or packaging uh, and what came about was these dossiers. And so the ones that are printed on the backs are edited versions of these because yeah. they're they're a little too long. And then it became the the annual uh, part of the the toy line,
2: yeah. I mean, and for people that bought those early toys, I mean, cutting these out and and collecting these was a brilliant idea from a marketing standpoint as well, but also just added so much interest and a personality to a you know a plastic toy that had just come out you know you, you suddenly get to know the character so well and it, and it feels very thought out and detailed and i think it started with you know Hamma's original as you say they, they condensed it down from an even more detailed version of that uh, but that you know brilliant things that just were not done uh prior to that in toys
1: uh chuck it sounds like you don't have a strong relationship with the gi joe toy line of of that time
2: I do not. I again never have bought a GI Joe toy. Strangely wow. enough, I have giant but, ones behind. But, me, ha, but how many of the toys
1: <laughs> how many toys have been given to you by someone who just wanted to find the link just the right figure, just the right vehicle? Um
2: uh, the only toy that has been given to me was I got one of the mail-in Cobra commanders that a friend of the, my 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 friend that uh, went with me to the convention. I I think I got it from his collection course it's now like the the rubber bands have exploded on it so it is uh, it's in pieces but that's the only gi joe toy i have ever owned strangely enough as big of a gi joe fan i have had in my mind that i would like to go back and buy like mint conditioner really nice condition toys of the original uh lineup but i have never gone back and done it partly because i'm a little scared that they're going to blow up uh that, that the rubber bands are going to break in some way so <laughs> i, I want to end up with toys that are going to explode in the packaging but um, yeah, strangely enough, my t- I was more tied to the comics and the artwork than I was the actual toys themselves.
0: So. Uh, and on the comments, Diana chips in and reminds us of the fact that uh, at one point they didn't uh, want to pay Larry to do these file cards anymore and decided to, to do them in-house. I think his description was, you know, to, to some young intern and uh, uh, where they were always the best of the best at everything. And uh, they quickly learned the difference between a marketer and an artist and decided to pay him again.
1: Yeah, there are um, some middle years. And then certainly at the end of Real American Hero, uh, you, you can tell which ones <laughs> are. There's some that might be Larry Hama. There's some that are a Hazard person rewriting an earlier Larry Hama one. And there's some that are uh, they're fun. They're just definitely not Larry Hama. Yeah.
2: yeah, the the late I do have other dossiers. I think the latest one I have is for the fridge because I just thought that one was funny. Um, <laughs> and that one is actually uh, that is actually not typed. That one's actually on a, you know, sort of a computer that he printed out. It was the only one okay. that he you know, only prints out he kept. But it's interesting to just even see the progression that he moved from like an old style typewriter to a dot matrix printer.
0: I was just I was looking at this one because the the bulk of that original typed file card is actually what made made it onto the uh, onto the published version on the back of the card, apart from this e- extra peer personality assessment at the at the bottom. And it's um yeah, it's great. Uh, and, and of its time, <laughs> I've got to admit, Robert, I was as leery.
2: <laughs> was Robert Graves mentioned in G.I. Joe one for some reason or was there a file of Robert Graves somewhere? I, I uh, feel like I've seen that name somewhere. Grunt. Okay. I, that's
0: Grunt's files name. Yeah. So this yeah. is Grunt describing her. Yeah. I was a, a, leery as the other guys about having a woman on the team, especially one as foxy as her. <laughs> but yeah, after, yeah. after the first mission <laughs> us with us, everything was copacetic. Yeah.
2: Excellent stuff. Yeah. You know, of the time period, of the time period. So.
0: Okay. We we move on to the yeah. next one? Wow.
2: Yeah. So this, um, you know, again, I I got to know Herb Trimpe very well in his later years and helped him with some of his sketchbooks that uh, he would take to conventions. Uh, And obviously G.I. Joe was was something I loved to talk to him about. And, you know, while he was still alive, he had mentioned to me that he had done a a number of designs before he got to G.I. Joe 1. So when he took on the GI Joe project, um, you know, obviously G- the GI Joe one cover was used as part of the pitch process. Uh, but when he went to go sort of translate the toys, the the Ron Rudat designs, he he had to create the faces and other things for the you know for the characters that um, that may not have been as distinct in the toys themselves. So he went through an exercise of drawing each of the characters. Um, In you know in this sort of format, but in this set of drawings, he he told me he wanted to do a version of it that was more military like. He he didn't frankly like the idea that the original costumes were you know not standard military, and they you wouldn't really ever see that you know having come from a military background. And so the set of uh, the original Joes that he had done, he had sort of taken a different spin on them, or a slightly different spin. And you'll notice Scarlett's costume here. Is very different than the, the toy itself and the, ultimately the one that was drawn. So, you know, I think he showed these to Marvel as part of, um, you know, sort of the creative process. And uh, he always expressed disappointment to me. He was like, yeah, they kind of shot it down. Um, and, and they basically said, nope, stick with the toy designs. And so he, he had to go back to drawing the, the toy designs uh, later on. But I think what did stick relative to these designs is sort of the faces that you see on these. Um, so this is obviously the way that he was drawing Scarlet in G.I. Joe number one um, from that perspective. So uh, so so there was some aspect of that. And um, but, and you also, know, great to see this. Yeah. this early. And also, early. at some
0: point, they they decided to give her the ponytail as well, which wasn't uh, on the on the figure
2: that was that was herbs i guess you know because if you're going to put it in a helmet you can't just have it free flowing and i think the 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 ponytail and again this is probably his own experience having been in the military is and maybe you know for the, the folks that were in the military that that were female that he knew you know putting it in a ponytail made more sense to him so um that that's maybe why he gave it that look
1: and uh, as we record this in early july 2021 the the rules for uh how women can keep their hair in uh the military just changed last month there there is more there's more flexibility cuz if you have a bun and you have a helmet your hair gets pulled back and you can have a lot of uh, of headaches yeah. um i'm really struck in this uh drawing by um how how pretty the pencils are um yeah sure trim trimpy's work you know, we so rarely see the pencils because, um, you know, he, he created such a volume of comics over 30 some years uh, that we're used to the inks and then, you know, how it's published in color. And um, there are there are other artists from whom seemingly a lot of photocopies of pencils like Mike Zeck and Jack Kirby there in, in the fan publications. A lot of these photocopies of pencils are out there um and not so much with Trimpy um and so it's it's a real delight to see all the work he's doing here in the textures in hair in clothing folds um you know uh, like leather for pouches and a little bit of metallic uh for I mean, mechanical for for her weapons
2: yeah i think uh and i think it, it's a it's a good thing is that you can see a contrast between Hama style and Trimpy style in drawing very you know i think Herb focused on the black and whites and really having those shadows. And I think you saw a lot of that with Kirby as well. And there's obviously a Kirby influence when when uh, Trimpy joined Marvel in the 60s. I think he was trying to emulate a little bit of what Kirby was doing since he was the dominant style. But um, in, in 1982, which is a little later in his career to have these such tight pencils, it shows that he was taking a real big interest in this project. And I think he was you know, genuinely excited to sort of translate and actually have a military team um, that he was about to draw. And so I think he took his time with each of these drawings that he had done of each of the different characters and, and try to figure out how do I make these distinct and how do I make them stand out uh, as characters, given that it was an ensemble cast that they, they needed to bring together here. So, um, you know, really impressive behind the scenes things and, and a little bit of history on these is that, you know, I hadn't actually seen any of these until unfortunately after he had died. Uh, and then you know I, I got to know the family a little bit better and I had found out that I guess earlier he had given uh, different drawings to different folks in the family and and they were all kind enough to sort of allow me to to purchase a lot of these knowing how big of a a GI Joe art fan I was uh, and try to to sort of reassemble the cast, so to speak uh, of the different characters but uh, he he even felt they were so special that you know frankly of of the artwork that he kept, um, you know these original Joe sketches were something that he thought was 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 important to 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 maintain so um, i'm glad i could be the keeper of them now and and obviously uh, you know hopefully for future generations to sort of study these and really see these early intro you know er, or versions of the joe's the joe characters and how they evolve from here Mm
0: -hmm. and there's a a delicateness and detail to to you know these illustrations that you don't always necessarily see in the in the printed work and I, i guess part of that is the production process that you know the 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 paper that's being used and the printing methods that were being used at, at the at the time and I wonder you know would we have seen a very different kind of you know her uh, tribute to um, you know if they had some of the technologies of t- today where where he could have included a lot more of these sort of fine details. Uh, on the, on the paper uh, on the paper and seen that well
2: and i think when we get to you know looking at his artwork i think here's an early example we'll talk more about his special missions artwork i think when you see that special missions art it is really detailed i mean it's really a different it's it's a finer line it's it's it, the, the line work on it is super detailed and if you go back and look at that um i really think that was herbs chance to break out and do more of a fine art book, you know. I think when the early Joe books, it was we've got to do something. It's a little bit more commercial. It's a little bit more model, um, and so it was a little bit more blocky. But by the time they got to special missions, it was let's tell stories in the real world. And at the time, he was uh, he was working on another book, uh, Savage Tales, where if you look at the work that he did in that Savage Tales magazine, it's probably some of his finest work. Um, Herb goes all out now, not characters that people know or care about, frankly. But the artwork <laughs> in it is just fantastic. And I think that's part of it, is a lot of people, you know, may, may not be true, you know, fans of looking for all of Herb's work. But if you can find those early Savage Tales magazines, you'll see really Herb at his finest. But I think a lot of that got translated to those early special missions issues that he was working on. When you look back on issues one and two, and you know, he's doing the pencils and the inks himself versus having in the in issue one of G.I. Joe, Bob McLeod was actually the inker. And when you see the original pencils for G.I. Joe one, it's very much like this, but Bob actually softened it, and I'm sure he got some um, uh, some direction from folks at Marvel to sort of you know not make it look as you know sort of trimpy as it is, and not as blocky, but to sort of smooth out some of that and add that. But Bob Bob has a very dominant inking style where the Bob McCloud shows, and I think you see that in GI Joe One, which set a, a little bit of a different pace. But when you look at say GI Joe's, um, I think. 7, I believe it was, where Chick Stone is inking him. Chick is, you know, he was one of the Kirby inkers. And so I think when you see issue 7 of G.I. Joe, you'll see a more true version of sort of Trimpy's pencils reflected uh, in G.I. Joe 7 versus, say, G.I. Joe number 1.
0: Okay, very good. Uh, Sorry, Tim, was there something else that you wanted to say before I flick onto the next one? No, let's keep going. Okay, all right. So, Okay, the next one I think it's kind of needs a drum roll, and uh, I don't know where we'll go from here because it's uh, it's such a pinnacle. But I'll just click onto it and uh, be, you know, set, set, ready to set your faces to
2: stun. <laughs> <laughs> so this speaking is... of Bob McLeod and Gi Joe one. Uh this was uh this is you know this is the I guess the money shot, so to speak, of all the original Joes being introduced for the first time, uh at least by by name, uh, in the pages of G.I. Joe number one. So um yeah, I don't know exactly what to say. No, I think I think what I would say about this <laughs> one is, I mean, starting with again, you can see where we looked at Herb's original pencils, and I think in uh is it at panel four there, you can see sort of a, a feel of it, but panel three really just does not feel very trimpy, frankly. Um, you can see a lot more Bob McCloud in the inking. I think you see the zipitone that was used in the in the nineteen eighties being, you know, used on this page again to sort of give it a, a more modern look and feel versus a nineteen sixties feel that had that. And even the way you can sort of see his cheeks being inked there. This is very much Bob, and so I see more, you know, more more of Bob there than I do of of Herb's original pencils. And I think I don't, you know, have copies of the original pencils. I do believe actually Bob did keep those original pencils, so they are out there, but um, or he copies of the pencils. Let me say, but um, but yeah, I think it's 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 interesting to sort of see the the style change between Herb's original style and what ended up in the pages of GI Joe number one. Um, but you know, great, great, great introduction. You got a nice Cobra banner in the background in the first panel there leading up to sort of the, the money shot at the bottom, which is okay, let's, let's get to know each of these Joes and look at each of these Joes. And, you know, a few things I'll point out on this one, which is, I think it's, it's the unknown Joe that was never released in the bottom right corner. that always, always gets, gets me attention and, and sort of a laugh, which is shooter. Um, And and you guys would know. Have they ever come out with a shooter figure?
0: Yes. Uh, Yep. They did. Okay. They they had a big backstory uh, for Shooter and the reveal of the character in uh, GI Joe Declassified. So they they sort of it. Larry did come up with a shooter to kind of explain who this mystery Joe actually was.
1: And and again, I think it's worth pointing out. I don't. I don't have proof. This is a guess on my part. This is a joke because Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. And, yeah. and we, it's not, this isn't like Hama or the letterer, and the letterer would not have uh, taken uh, matters into their own hands. But this is not someone, I don't think this is someone trying to create potential for a 14th member. This is a joke because on the top right of the panel, you can see the first letter of the 15th Joe, who <laughs> seems to be bald. I think it's baldy.
0: Yeah, B for Baldy, maybe. Yeah.
1: Um, so this is you know, and 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 you know, you read you read comics, you read Marvel comics from the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and uh, you know, people get nicknames in the credits, Smiling Stan and Jolly Jack. Um, sometimes there'd be uh, a fill-in artist, and the credits would say, you know, it's like, uh, like Jack Kirby will be back next month, but we welcome John Buscema for a fill-in this month, or and we welcome so and so as the new regular artist. Uh, or, you know, here's here's a talent, and then um, wrapping it all together in a bow is our editor, so and so. and and here and there, that kind of uh, um, jokey um, celebration could sort of leak up onto the first page or into the story., uh, you know, Stanley and Jack Kirby show up in an issue of Fantastic Four. Um, so, this is a this is a throwaway gag, which in a three issue mini series uh twenty-five years later, uh Larry Hama went back to. Yeah.
2: No, I and I I, I do agree that would that that would be my uh guess as well, is that they were always trying to make fun of, of Jim Shooter for different things and uh oh. he might get a kick out of it as well. But um but yeah, I think what's interesting about this though is looking at the corrections. And I think this is where the corrections start. You'll you know, if you see other pages from G.I. Joe one. You'll see a lot of these same corrections uh, all the way through because when you know Trumpy had designed some of these characters or had done those original designs, um, I guess they changed. They, you know, they decided to change sort of on the fly at the very last minute and add some details to each of the different characters that um, you know made them a little bit more distinct. And and Tim, you may have more insight as to whether or not it was you know due to toy changes and things that they were doing in the production of it. Um, or if it, if it had more to do with just sort of aligning around what the comic book characters would look like. But as you'll see, you know, there's notes at the bottom, which is, you know, clutch beard. So, you know, clutch originally did not, <laughs> you know, they, they, they had to add the beard to that. So originally he did not have a beard, uh, rock and roll full beard, you know, so they added a full beard to rock and roll. Um, and then they had changed. It looks like the name of stalker. From you know, they originally probably had lettered in Ranger and decided to go Stalker, and so you know, just on this page, you can and then the big the big change is Snake Eyes, which is, um, you know, they they hadn't aligned around what Snake Eyes had fully looked like when when uh, Trimpy had penciled this issue, and so they ultimately had to sort of go back and correct all the Snake Eyes figures in the issue.
1: Yeah, this is so subtle. I want to say it out loud. Uh, everyone the the paper has yellowed just a tiny bit but if you look uh at snake eyes the white inside snake eyes is a is a cooler brighter white like like white out like correction fluid uh
2: that is correct
1: so that he has been redrawn
2: so he has been completely redrawn from from the original look and feel of snake eyes to this which is i guess the aligned on for the for the very last thing but all and, and same thing for Stalker. You'll see that was whited out as well, and it's a very subtle subtle difference in color versus the other ones there as well.
1: Um, when, when you look at, uh, the, for our viewers, when you look at original art, um, half the time, or three quarters of the time, if you see something like Stalker's name, and you see that it's sitting on top of whiteout, half the time it's not a change because the script changed or it's based on a toy and they're figuring it out. Half the time it's because the letterer made a small error and left a word out or misspelled something and the editor or the the spell checker just corrected it and sometimes in non-photo blue pencil also called copy not pencil sometimes the correction like an arrow is just drawn right across the artwork and pointing to the offending error and that that blue does not get picked up when at marvel they photograph the black and white artwork onto film Um, So when so when you see corrections like this, sometimes it is exciting is what Chuck is talking about right now. And sometimes it's like, oh, that that letter, that word was misspelled.
2: Yes, that that is true. And I think I think these are interesting in that it shows that the corrections were made after, you know, again, the process is Trimpy would have penciled it. He would have mailed them over to Bob McLeod. Bob McLeod would have inked them on the same page on the original art that had Trimpy's pencils. And then it would have been sent into Marvel sort of for final approval. Typically the letterer, uh, I'm not sure where the lettering was done on this, but I do think it was lettered uh, either after Trimpey had penciled it as well. But that shows me that these corrections all came in after McLeod had finished his job inking it and, and that somebody had gone back probably in the offices and made these corrections. So I'm not even 100% sure. I don't think I've ever asked Bob this if he he made the corrections or if one of the editorial folks at Marvel had gone in and sort of changed all the snake eye images and and added the beards and yeah to, for to the characters
1: for uh, for for viewers who know about the marvel bullpen you know the marvel bullpen is is where the editors have offices the publisher and the president are upstairs making business decisions and there are production people who are dealing with photographing the artwork uh storing the those those films right in effect the copies uh, wrangling, like all the, uh, the color information to send those off to the, the place that's going to do the, uh, color film. Um, and some of these people in the bullpen are artists and they're the ones that do the corrections. Uh, and every so often, if the inker is dropping off pages for some other comic or the next issue, the editor could say, "Oh, oh, Oh, um, can you do a fix on this page from your last issue? But, um, Often it was just, you know, one of like five people in the office. It's like, oh, we need you to redraw this head. We need you to uh, black out this helicopter because the helicopter needs to show up in the next panel, that kind of thing.
2: That is correct. Uh,
0: Diana's put in a comment as well, who's next to Hawk and Zach's Zap? So to the left of Hawk and Zap is looks like there's more blurb coming along. So, uh, hinting at some other people on that, that screen. This means, this
1: means, this means I want another Larry Hama miniseries.
0: (laughs) Exactly. That's what it means. Uh, (laughs)
1: The the, the Baldy initiative. Maybe, maybe,
2: (laughs) you know, early origins of Duke and Root roadblock or something like that. I don't know. Maybe they knew they were (laughs) coming.
1: (laughs) Uh, I was going to make a joke. That doesn't work. Uh, um, (laughs) Uh, what's what is our next I love this. What is our next slide? Uh
0: okito Key, okay, let's well, do we just get it? to it? Yeah, uh, let's do it.
2: It's it's moving on. We're gonna go uh, numerical in order from GI Joe one uh, to here we go. GI Joe two. So collecting the, you know again the pages from the early books. So we you know we move from issue one, which was drawn by um Herb Trimpe and I guess you know, people sometimes forget, I'm sure the Die Hard Joe fans don't, is that there was a backup story in G.I. Joe 1 as well. It doesn't always get reprinted when the story from G.I. Joe 1 gets reprinted, but it was a 10-page story called Hot Potato. And it, so it's interesting in that there really were two artists that were the first to draw G.I. Joe. I think Trippi... Obviously you can see from the character designs was the person that was designing sort of the look and feel of the, of the characters for the comics. But Perlin was also the other artist that was drawing at the time. And so while Trimpy was drawing issue one, uh, Tr- you know Perlin got the assignment of drawing issue two, which is, it's interesting to, I think sometimes people forget that they were sort of trading off between Trimpy and Perlin for a lot of those stories. So, so Perlin drew issues two and five completely and then had the backup story in one while uh, Herb had drawn one, uh, three, four, six, and seven. And and you guys may have talked about it on others, but six and seven were originally supposed to be three and four. Um, And then they ended up getting held up because of editorial changes. But issue two, um, you know, again, a personal favorite. I just thought the storytelling on this particular issue blew me away. You know, frankly, as as a comic book collector... You know, not being you know, sort of the the person that read these from. I actually did buy issue one off the stands. It's sort of an issue, an interesting story is I was visiting my grandparents when issue one came out, so I went to the spinner rack and bought issue one uh, along with maybe a Team America two or something that that came out that month. And then I, as a kid, I left my comics at the airport uh, when we were changing planes, and so I never got to <laughs> read. That was like the big disappointment. So I never got to read GI Joe one. I, I had bought it, and it was a dollar fifty. It was not cheap as a kid. You know, I had to save up for that issue, and I, I was so disappointed. I was like, I can't spend another dollar fifty to buy that book. I guess I'll just have to <laughs> read it later. So and uh, so then I remember GI Joe two, but I was so I was so. Uh, uh, I guess so heartbroken after not being able to read G.I. Joe one, I just sort of gave up on reading them when they were hitting the newsstand. So I didn't read G.I. Joe two until later until it became a $40 comic book. I mean <laughs> collectors back in the eighties, you knew that G.I. Joe two was the quote unquote hard one to get. Um, so I actually had to read it as a back issue when it was, when it was an a quote unquote expensive back issue, but the storytelling on this uh, I, I was blown away on just how great this particular issue was It really for me culminated with this, just the visuals in that last couple of panels. That it it really just, you know, talked about this page really talks about sort of Quinn's um, sense of morality and really what that meant to him. And, you know, his, and I would say the surprise twist ending, he sort of knew what was coming. And just to see those last couple of panels. Sort of come to fruition with Snake Eyes wearing Quinn's necklace was, um, you know, it, it, I, I'd never seen storytelling quite like that. And so when I saw the original art, I always wondered. I was like, you know, that that last panel looks a lot like, you know, they just redrew the the, the panel to the left of it. Is it, you know, a photostat or is it not? And a photostat is a reproduction uh, on a special photographic paper that they would make back back around that time frame. And when you actually blow it up there, uh, Mark, if you want to blow that up, you can actually see it is in fact a, uh, a a photo stat in that last panel that they just blew up. But even, even from a sense of storytelling to say that we want to focus in and make sure the readers, the last thing that they're left with is the realization that, you know, Quinn had left the the necklace and snake eyes had found the necklace. And now it's over for these two. Um, Just an amazing way to end a story and, and the, you know, for a for a quote unquote toy comic book, it was it was this this to me proved it was one of the best written books, you know, at the time.
1: So, mm. so we are looking at a stat. That final panel is a reproduction this, of is. the second this, to last. Oh,
2: yeah. Have you? It is. You can sort of see the texture if you look at the, if if you look at Snake Eyes's face. That that's because of the stat. And that, yeah, I guess when you actually have the. The art in in person, you can actually see it. I may actually have the art next to me. Let me see.
1: Chuck, it. have you pulled think, this panel I think... off? I
2: to, have not. Let me see if me, I actually have the page here, but uh, let me let me pull it out to see okay. if are um, they Are they both stats on the bottom? Because um, they're both well, pretty. You know, it's interesting. This 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 looks like the whole last part. Like oh, this well, is the bottom. Separate. You can see it. It's the bottom tier. The bottom tier was replaced. Okay, and. Now that I look at it, it's interesting, now that I look at it up front, this is actually a stat. Yeah, okay. (laughs) The top part is a stat. The bottom part was hand-drawn, and then this is full stat. This part down here was hand-drawn. But um, on the back of it, you can sort of see the note, which is one positive at 80%. So, you know, I am using the light right now as I look at this to see if the original art was behind it or if it was drawn on maybe a separate page hard for me to see. I guess if I shine a light, Oh, it was, Oh, I can see it now. It's funny when you, when you have the art, you can sort of see through it. If there's a strong enough light, the panel was originally drawn larger. Um, you can sort of see Scarlet's face was a, a lot larger and they covered over that with the photostat. They actually shrunk it down.
1: So, I was guess the so I- that was they
2: could fit all four of them in there.
1: Was sorry. Was the idea that this what we we're seeing as the second to last panel filled the space of the final two panels and it shrinking may have. it? They wanted. I, to create...
2: I think that's in. that may be it because okay. it, Scarlett's head definitely looks a lot bigger, and so it looks like they rejiggered
1: so that you could it, the, have the final panel.
2: Yes. Well, I you know I'd have to actually shine a really bright light to see if it's all under there, but I do believe I see. I think I see over here you guys can't see it I believe I see uh, is that stalker maybe no could be stalker um, but yeah there's definitely some there, there's definitely work underneath there that they covered up with the photo stat I guess they decided it was more dramatic to do the close-up at the very end of it so well, it's funny I haven't I haven't pulled that page out in a number of years to look at it in detail and even the picture of um, of the you know of all of them together in the in sort of the far away shot that is also a stat. So I think they played around with visually how Mm -hmm. to end the story of, you know, sort of going from a very far away shot to a pretty up close shot to a very up close shot at the end and just figured that was the best way of doing it It is here. You're realizing, you know, or, or here you're realizing, okay, the Joe's have made it through. Oh, now you sort of see them all together. And now it's like, focus in on the, the important part of that picture, which is the fact that snake eyes is wearing the necklace and you know, what's coming next. So, just again, you know, blown away on just the storytelling, the way to mm-hmm. do that, and and the funny thing is too, no words. I mean, when you look at those last two panels, no words at all. You don't need the well, you don't need the words to to tell the story. Yeah, this you know, is on a this little...
0: ultra on this ultra close version. I think you can even see a thumbprint or <laughs> fingerprint or something over over on Snake Eyes' face here yeah. from uh, the person. And you can see you can also see the line
2: right below Snake Eyes's uh, hands there. Of where the original art is yeah, drawn yeah. and where the photostat was, so they, yeah. they they covered over that.
1: Yeah, so the so the original the original drawing oh, they're cropped yeah. at their waists, and all four heads and torsos are much bigger, which fills the the two rectangles of these final panels. But in order to sh- in, in shrinking that drawing to fit now as a second to last panel and then diminish the headroom. So there isn't space above their heads where you think there should be word balloons. You then have to draw in their uh, their, uh, their um, pelvises and, and yeah. their legs. So these word balloons are yellow. So these must be cut out and rubber cemented.
2: Yeah, so that's typically done. That is correct. Um, th- that's typically done when they're in a rush uh, and they haven't, as I said previously, the typical process is pencil first, then send it over to the letterer the letterer then will put in the words and then the inker will finalize the drawings around it. In this case, that shows that they had to take the pencils, send them over to the inker who was Jack Abel at the time. Uh, Jack would have, would have inked everything. And then I guess they were still working on finalizing the story. And then so they just had somebody work on the word balloons on a on vellum. So they would have had overlays of the pencils and then they were working in parallel on that. And then they would just cut it out and paste them over at the end. But yeah, it's a, from an original art perspective, it, it gets messy because those word balloons they flake off and and, and get lost all the time. Yeah, so, ru- tonight, no. rubber
1: cement does not hold its adhesion for forty years. I have a much later G.I. Joe page where a couple word balloons fell off, and so I used some uh, archival double-sided acid-free tape to stick the word balloons back on. And I felt both like I both excited to be saving and restoring the art, and also a little bit like I was violating it.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, for, for those types of projects, I have an art restorer here in California that I trust to do that, but, uh, but you're right. And unfortunately, original art was not made, you know, they were making it that month to get it out the door. It was not made to last as a fine piece of artwork. And so sometimes you have to do things to the artwork to, to help preserve it for a few more years. And, and, you know, frankly, in, in some cases, you know, it might be smart for me to 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 have all those removed and then deacidified and then, and then put back on, but I don't necessarily have the heart to do it myself. But I think there does get to a point where you've got to, you've also got to help protect the art and make sure that it, it can last for generations to come.
1: What's the? Um, can you zoom in? Um, one, two, three, four. Mark, can you can you zoom in next to panel four? There's something written uh, sideways on the right gutter. It
2: says to you. So that that's an example, Tim. I think of where they probably wrote y o u apostrophe r e. Hmm. and corrected it to say oh, y-o-u-r yes, yes, y- yeah, yeah. right. that would be my guess uh yeah 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 yeah
0: you've got you've got the white to your is whited out there and there's i guess the editorial requesting
2: that change yes yeah, sp- but spell check didn't exist as easily back in back in 1982
1: Uh, I have seen a uh, Larry Hama script or two where there is uh, an apostrophe where there need not be one or uh, a missing one where there should be one. Um, But that's, that's, that is the process, right? Like the editors fix the mistakes and the letterers are checking the mistakes and the proofreaders are checking the mistakes.
2: Yeah. And I think you have to remember when, you know, this is a monthly book. So everybody, and, and sometimes a penciler might have two books to do a month. And same thing for a writer. So I'm I'm not sure if Larry was writing anything else at the time, but you you know, you may have a week, maybe he it took a week to write the script, or maybe even just a few days. So, you know, focusing on spelling and all the rest of that stuff was probably not the biggest priority. It was getting the the main product off to the next person so that they could they could work on their piece of this. So
1: what is our next slide? Uh, next slide. We do is... jump. We do that,
2: we we go to a, I guess, issue 10. But what I wanted to illustrate here is, uh, and I'm not sure how many people, you know, I'm sure the Die Hard Joes know that Larry, for many of the covers, actually um, created the layouts. And so he would hand an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper to the artist who is actually scheduled to draw the cover. And this is one of the rare examples of Larry's hand drawn cover layouts for issue 10 as far as i know and, and tim you may know of others that exist i've only heard of three of these that still exist it was issue nine issue 10 and issue 24 which was a mike Zach cover so two of them are Vosberg's and one is is a zach and these this actually came from mike Vosberg. it was funny i was over at his house and uh he's like hey look what i just found you know this was probably three four <laughs> years ago he's like i found these sketches and uh He's like, I'm sending him, you know, he's like, you know, these are Larry's original sketches that he had sent me to draw the cover to GI Joe's nine and 10. And I was like, well, Mike, what are you going to do with them? He's like, well, they're Larry's. So Larry can decide what he's going to do with them because I'm going to (laughs) return them to Larry. And That's I was like, but, but wait, I've been looking for decent. something like this all my life, Mike. <laughs> so, he, uh, so he he, got me in touch with Larry so that I could purchase them directly back from Larry. But it was, I mean, A, it was great that Mike, you know, felt uh, because it wasn't his artwork that he, you know, yeah. because he found it, he was going to return them to Larry. And thank you to Larry for, for actually allowing me to purchase them from him. But I, I think it's just, you, you don't see these. Um, most of the, you know, I talked to Mike Zach and I was like, Mike, what did you do with all your sketches? He's like, Honestly, I I probably threw them away because, you know, there was really no reason to keep them at the time. Um, But the funny thing is, too, you can see a little bit of a crease. It it was actually folded up and probably sent in like a regular envelope to, to, you know, before the days. You can sort of see two creases if if you look at it because it was probably just mailed in a regular envelope over to Vosberg so that he could draw the cover for this um, because they obviously didn't have… and the... It's right underneath the the Real American Hero logo, I believe.
1: So to to point out the obvious, since uh, medium gray and dark gray can sort of feel the same, these are original pencils drawn onto an eight and a half by eleven photocopy of the the empty rectangle with the logo.
2: Um, that is correct.
1: And to yeah. answer your question, Chuck, uh, I know of at least one more because I own Hama's cover sketch for issue thirty.
2: Oh great! What? Great. For breaking um, news, folks. Breaking news. Hopefully, Tim will, will show it on a future episode. But.
1: well, it is in my book, so some someday everyone will see it.
2: Yeah, everybody will see it. That's great. Um, yeah, I did and not know another one. Another Zach had had made there, it out there.
0: There is one. There is one more in the wild that only was made public. I think last week, very very recently, uh, issue thirty-seven, which is uh, oh, the one of. Flint uh, jumping off the armadillo tank onto uh, one of the Crimson tw- Twins on the roller coaster, uh, which is, uh, I posted that the other day on the Talking Joe Facebook page. So uh, head over there if you want to uh, see it. Um, I can't off the top of my head remember the credit, but but yeah, it's it's there on the Facebook page and also on Instagram if you do want to track it down.
1: So in looking at this blow up here, um, I think a lot of times, Fans of Larry Hama, we take for granted that his stories are entertaining and his characterization is compelling in a long running series like G.I. Joe. And then sometimes we remember that, you know, issues 21 and 26 um, uh, are are really well drawn and that the storytelling is really great. And what I think. Uh, sometimes gets lost, and, and Chuck makes a great point earlier in this episode that that Larry started as a as an artist um, in comics, and even before the second appearance of Iron Fist in Marvel Premiere, he was he was drawing for other publications. Um, is that um, Hama's visual storytelling? I don't mean just like sequentially, like oh, you know what's happening in issue twenty one without the words. I mean his ability to compose an image and to populate it with characters that are in poses that that tell the story. And again, I think people sometimes get sort of uh, confused on sort of what story is because they're thinking of a script or a plot, like words in a row that, that, that says what happens. But for this cover, right? And there aren't a lot of comics that have covers like this, right? This cover, um, it it tells a story in one image, right? So you, and, and yes, it, there's a little bit of a cheat because there's wording in that sign. Uh, and in this case, there's, uh, there's dialogue, which doesn't show up in the final. But everyone's pose is supporting this idea, right? That the two Joes are like, they're doing fine. Scarlet looks happy or excited. And even though Snake Eyes' pose looks a little bit like he's creeping along, there isn't tension. They're not like, like sliding up on the other side of that fake house, the way that this full-bodied Cobra soldier is, right? And we see just, this happens in issue 21, a bunch. We see just enough of this second Cobra soldier on this cover to get the idea that there is a second Cobra soldier and maybe more without Hama, A, having to draw the full body and B, taking up valuable space which is better spent on the texture of the wood, on the bush, the other bush, all the negative space around Scarlet, behind Snake Eyes, right? Like, we need to see that other house. We need to see an indication of another house behind it. Um, and uh, so again, story isn't just words in a, like, Word document or words on a typewritten page. And story isn't just descriptions of, like, sequential panels. Story is is, is this much bigger like uber thing that is both the ideas, the character, the change, the words, and the art all and, and the color all together. And um, Hama is, you know, like we see that the, the Scarlet sketch that we started with, it's like, that's a good drawing. This guy can draw people even if his style is sort of old school, it's loose, it's breakdowns, right? And you look at this and if I was a cover artist, and my editor said, Oh, you're gonna draw the cover to G.I. Joe 10. And I said, okay, what do I draw? And then they said, Oh, well, we're gonna mail you something. I would be so grateful that all of the problems have been solved. And now I can just worry about the time it's gonna spend me to actually like do the pencil mileage to move my hand, right? Like this composition is great because of the story, because of the because of the spacing, the design, uh, the poses.
0: Yeah, yeah. all of the Go ahead, Mark. I was, I was just gonna say all, all of the examples that we've seen where where Larry has done these very class, the the classic era GI Joe covers, it's it's all there, just the composition and and it's it's just then the the honing it down and tightening it, tightening it up. But actually the as you say, they're sort of solving the prob the, the, the puzzle of producing an incredible composition, what is where? it's 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 all there on the on the page um already it's it's sort of it's very evident from from seeing this and and the other examples of those those, uh prelims from from larry what a great visual storyteller he is
2: yeah and i think i think it's interesting to your point you know people give credit to mike Zach and others and not to say mike's not a great artist but it starts with larry's layouts for these things which is some of these designs is like coming up with the concept and coming up with that is the other artists can really tighten it up and add something to it. And it makes it, as Tim was saying, it's like, if you got like sort of the the, the work done for you to solve the problem of, of you know, sort of how to pull all this together, then you can focus your energy on making the cover just look fantastic. And I think that's what Zek does in a lot of his pieces. And I think with, with, you know, Vosburgh, this is not a, you know, typical Vossberg here, I guess, but In that it's but he can spend the time doing some of the details on there. Uh, And I always thought this was just one of the greatest, you know, covers of like the fake house and it's just like, how fake is this entire town? You just sort of see it from the wood grain and and that just the way that that right hand side of it is just like, wow, this is really a fake town. It reminds me of like going to Paramount's backlot or something. Um, we, but it, uh, you also notice the things that change right there there were there were words on this originally which is interesting yeah. as well and and Scarlett's holding a gun and not necessarily her crossbow so there you know even there were some tweaks that I think either editorial made or you know Vosberg or other noticed when they were doing this I'm sure taking the words out and but you get the feel of the fact that they feel safe when they're running there but they, you don't need the words to to, to to say that anymore on the cover.
1: That crossbow, if I had to guess, it's Hasbro that said, "Yeah, give her the weapon that the toy comes with. Um, There's another artist who was working at Marvel at this time, Ed Hannigan, who is well-known for doing a lot of great cover layouts at Marvel in the late 70s, early 80s. And Ed Hannigan, in fact, penciled the cover to G.I. Joe 21. And lots of people get this fact wrong because a couple prominent websites... (laughs) got it wrong, because uh, the signature, um, if if the signature even appears on your bottom left corner of your copy of G.I. Joe 21, if it's not sort of hiding around the back, it's really hard to read. But, um, and you know, there's, there's an H, so people think it's Hama, right? But if that book was behind schedule, it wouldn't have made sense to have the guy rushing to draw the pages inside also draw the cover. But um, if you are, for our viewers, if you're interested in a little bit of this process of Marvel cover layouts. Um, Gil Kane did a bunch in the 70s, right, Chuck? Was he was He was, was, was guy? primarily
2: in the 70s, yeah. I mean, I think he may have done some stuff. He was working more for DC in the 60s with okay. Adam and other things, yeah.
1: And then um, Ed Hannigan uh, did a bunch of cover layouts for all different books uh, at Marvel in the late 70s and early 80s. And Marvel and the Hero Initiative, which is that wonderful nonprofit, um, published a, a comic sized benefit for Ed Hannigan back in two thousand and nine called Ed Hannigan Uncovered, which talks a little bit about his process of doing these kinds of cover breakdowns, cover sketches, and reproduces some of them. Uh, and it's not this is not a big expensive book. this is a a comic book sized uh, uh, comic. So in addition to, uh, this being related, because it's the same kind of image we see here on the left, Hannigan does have a small and key connection to G.I. Joe.
2: Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting, and, and Tim, maybe you, you have it already as part of your book, which is understanding issue by issue who did actually the, the cover layouts, because there are, you know, for many Marvel books, whether it's Dave Cockrum or other folks that were doing these cover layouts, Maurice Severn was also known for doing a bunch of them in not G.I. Joe. But I'd be interested to see. You know, I was always told that that Hama did, ma- you know, the majority of them, and I know the ones that Zach had gotten. Most of them were coming directly from Hama. But I'd be interested to understand which ones he didn't do. Um, you know, just from just from a you know GI Joe historian perspective, you'd be maybe that's a and, something that you can you can do some research and reveal one day. If you, if you uh,
1: that's it. that I have not tr- I have not attempted that. Um, I think some <laughs> of those I think some of those we may never know. Yeah. Because uh, the artists have uh, have died, or some memories are a little fuzzy. I think I think the best we may do is that Hama did most of them for the first, mm. you know, 100, yeah. 100 issues, and probably beyond. Yeah.
0: But when I when I spoke to Mike Zek when he appeared at a convention in in London, I spoke to him briefly about this this idea, and um, I. Th- think he said to me that that not every single one of his gi joe covers was based on a a hammer layout so some of them were you know his 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 pure originals without without that underlying work from from larry and you probably know better than
2: yeah i don't i I don't know if i talked to mike about uh, and i guess i could ask him which ones he designed himself um you know, like I said, I, I talked to him and, he, and it's, it is funny to see like Joe 24 looks just like, you know, Zach's final thing. It's just Zach, you know, finalized it and made it look really tight. But, mm. you know, Hama's design is there. Part, uh, so of,
1: part, of, uh, part of another factor in this um, formula or schedule is that uh, four issues a year were advertised on television. And so those covers had to be completed earlier in the cycle.
2: Interesting. And I do, you may know better again. I thought 10 was one of no, 11 was on. I remember 11 was a commercial, so I don't think 10 was on.
1: I mean, 24
2: was. Yeah. 24 uh, was.
1: And that's, yeah. that's a Hama sketch, which yep. becomes the second cover. Maybe, so. maybe
2: 10 was, I, I'm vaguely remember. I, I know 11 was, cause I remember that snow job, you know, the, uh,
1: um, if, yeah. if 11 was 10 was there, there is a list.
2: Yeah. Um, it would have, would have been. But if
1: if 11 was uh, 10 certainly was not.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that were, was done were, by Eleven was done by Bob Camp, which was an odd choice because he had no connection to this to the series whatsoever, except he was in animation, I guess. So I think
1: I think I think the connection might have been sort of Marvel in general or or Larry Hama. That, that's la- so Larry in in writing GI you know, right Larry writing Larry Hama writing G.I. Joe was his his second job. His day job was being an editor at Marvel, where he was picking artists to work on. Uh, crazy Magazine and a little bit later the Conan books and so he was constantly people were coming to his office and he's calling people and his assistant is calling people and uh, so uh, you know you, you'd ask someone because you know that they can deliver or because they walk in the door or because you're you know you're friends with them and you want to like toss them something
2: well, anyway, good good example okay. of a of a Larry, Larry Hama uh, cover layout here
1: Yes, next. What's, what's our what's, next slide? What's
2: next? Ooh. Uh, so um, I wanted to make sure we got a Mike Vosberg in here. Um, although finding Mike Vosberg examples is a little tougher than frankly some. So uh, I had explained this on, on the uh, live stream that we had done with Mike. Uh, you know, Mike was, you know, G.I. Joe was probably, you know, although we loved him working on that from his standpoint, he had worked a long time on She-Hulk, and then he had he gotten the assignment after uh Trimpy had left to, to work on G.I. Joe. But you know, frankly, it didn't come from the same background as Trimpy, where you know, Trimpy was in the war. Uh Vosberg was, was not. You know, he was he was, mm-hmm. but for him, this was more of an assignment of drawing these characters. And also a little bit difficult because you had to stay on model, you had to uh, you know, draw a whole host of it. It was a lot different than drawing, say, She-Hulk, which was more of a singular character. Uh, but I think he rose to the challenge on doing it. Um, But one of the challenges too, is Mike always liked to also ink his own work. If he had time to do that, his favorite work is inking himself. And so I think here he was working with, uh, with D'Agostino who came, I think D'Agostino was, was known a lot for, I don't know, later in his years for working at Archie and other places, but had a very sort of different style uh, than, uh, than, than Mike did. And, you know, similarly, I think it was like Bob McCloud and 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 herb Trimpey, they had sort of two different very styles. So I think ultimately, Mike didn't see all his work always reflected in the GI Joe artwork he did. And so as you know from from the perspective of saving his favorite artwork, GI Joe was not necessarily his favorite artwork to save mm-hmm. over the years. And so Mike was known. he ta- he taught classes in his spare time. Some, you know people have reached out to me that said, hey, Mike was my was my teacher for a semester of, you know for my art class. And at the end of the art class, he would just pull out a, a stack of pages and say, take whatever, you know, everybody gets one in the class. And so people would walk away with an original art page from Mike's collection. And I have a feeling that a lot of the G.I. Joe pages ended up in those giveaways. Sometimes he said he would give them away to kids at shows. Um, you know, he, he frankly wasn't there to sort of make a lot of money off of it. But because of that, it's very hard to find Mike Voss per G.I. Joe pages. I have never, and you guys, again, may have seen more, I've never actually seen one of his original covers out there. He didn't you know, work on a lot of them. But have you guys seen a cover, an original cover out there? I
0: can't remember to my knowledge.
2: Um, no, I, don't, I, 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 I don't think know. I have. I've been looking for him for years. Really? Um, and the, the cover he started, he did eight. He did number nine. He did number 10. Uh, he did number 12, 13. Uh, and then after that, the one that we're showing here—that's actually a Herb Trimpe cover—and I, th- I think he did fifteen, which is the the other Quinn one in the in the in the uh, airplane. Um, but none of those have surfaced, and uh, and who knows exactly what happened to him. But Mike did keep a handful of pieces, and when I got to know him about twenty years ago, obviously G.I. Joe was top of mind, and I said, Mike, I'd like to buy some of your artwork or whatever you've got, mm-hmm. and I bought a lot of his other work for American Flag, uh, She Hulk, some other things. But he only had, I think, at the time, maybe three, two or three pages remaining from GI Joe, and this is one that he took extra pride in. This was always his his favorite image that he had drawn for GI Joe, and, and is the one when he gets recreation uh, requests. This is the one that people also request, and you know, I love it just because this was a great storyline. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of issue twelve, you see sort of you sort of see the reveal that Snake Eyes has a a face that's you know that's that's all burned up in, uh, and he's hiding it underneath the mask and that's revealed but the, the, the sort of the interplay between these three characters being stuck under you know under the water here in a small enclosed space uh, is just just an amazing thing and I think the the, the light and the dark on this um, you know I, I just just love the art composition of this particular piece here as well now nice it's also that the you know it's the issue that had the first appearance in Destro although obviously Destro is not on it whatsoever. Um, and frankly for those, the, the, the bottom part, the indicia out, you know, having that on the page as a splash page and the title, it, it, you know, next to a cover, this is really sort of as good as a you know, any sort of art collector would want. It's a nice big image. Um, and it's good, you know, sort of, uh, I, so I always thought these indicias and just sort of aligning it to when it was published and all that, even though that's all photocopied on or it's photostatted on there. Um, it's just neat to have, um, and just f- sort of, uh, places it in a time and place. And you've got all the characters at the bottom and all the copyrights and all that stuff, uh, which is kind of interesting to read.
1: And some tape. Do I see clear adhesive tape oh, on yeah. the left yeah. and right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. What are the, what are the words that have been scratched out in the left and right margins?
2: Um, that's interesting. Let me see if I have that page handy here and I can look at it live. I don't know. If I do. on, the,
1: on the right, it's fixing. Oh, it's. I think it's correcting the letterer and colorist's names. I'm saying, I,
2: I think so. And that would, you know, yeah. it's probably one of these things where they may not have known who the colorist was going to be. I think the, uh, my gut is Bob Sharon was doing, I know he did the coloring on issue 13. So they probably had written in Bob Sharon and then decided to to switch it over to Christine Sheel. Um, yeah. And then and on, same, yeah. same with the letterer.
0: And on the left, it says move, uh, move credits. And what what uh, I like about the what the um, the credits down at, at the at the bottom is that, and I think a lot of fans kind of got wind to this is that all of the kind of uh, is it copy copy written or trademarked uh, characters that would see come you know see see uh, eventually see uh, releases toys would be named here. So you've got uh, Hawk, Scarlet etc. Uh, but if you've got a character introduced who um, maybe hasn't got a toy on the way. They're they're not going to be named down there, so so we won't have uh, Quinn, for example, because uh, he doesn't have a a toy to be uh, trademarked. At so, least
1: at that point in time, he did not. So I think I'm seeing a cut uh, just above that X on the left side next to the L of Larry, and then a cut just past Shooter's name. So I'm guessing what happened is uh, they were accounting for a normal height for the indicia they ended up getting this larger paragraph and so they had to <laughs> with too many uh, characters in it yeah so they had to redo the credits and move the credits up like a centimeter into the artwork yeah so i'm That's... guessing there's a little bit more inking underneath all these names um can you uh scroll a little bit up mark uh, yeah so we can focus on the all right so um uh so Diana Davis made a comment uh, a minute ago that, um, you know, the lighting here is super dramatic um, as if it's, it is, it is, it is inked as if the flashlight is the only light source. Uh, and that would have to be a very powerful uh, flashlight <laughs> to cast such a glow. But that's, you know, that's the kind of drama that we expect from comics and TV and movies. Like I'm actually less, I'm not so interested in sort of the realistic version where there's like one quarter as much light and we can't see the characters. So um, you have these wonderful cast shadow, uh, this wonderful cast shadow behind uh, Snake Eyes. Um, and then uh, D'Agostino is choosing to, um, just in front of Dr. Venom's face to kind of stop drawing the shadow of Snake Eyes' arm and just sort of cross hatch it out like it, like it's a gradient because he doesn't want that solid black to slam into Dr. Venom's yep. face. Same thing happens with the cast shadow of Venom's head behind his head where there's already a spotted black. Um, can you go up a little further, Mark? Um, and then again, in terms of, you know, I, I think Chuck is hinting at this with like, what, a, you know, what a this is a memorable drawing uh, of Vossberg's. Uh, um, <laughs> so in terms of the story of a GI Joe splash page, right? Like, we know that things are wrong because there's a crack in the ceiling and there's water trickling in and also like tr- dropping and like streaming in. And then uh, the water's now up to their you know calves. Um, Dr. Venom is holding a prop, which show it's like you only hold a chair like that when you're about to swing it into a person or a window or a door to escape. And um, there's immediate conflict because of Snake Eyes' pose. Right, so we have these two guys on the right in opposition to this guy on the left, and then Vossberg makes this wonderful decision here, to uh, to use a film term. Uh, this is at a Dutch angle. So if this was a camera on a tripod, the camera has been tilted to one side, and in film and television, a director does that to um, subtly or not subtly communicate to the audience that the character is off balance, often sort of mentally and. So we have this moment of worry and drama and conflict all in this one page. And one of the things that I love about uh, comic art from the last century is that even though it's drawn for color, it's also drawn for black and white. And there are artists nowadays and sort of the sort of the inking style of the last 20 years is you don't spot blacks this much because um, the colorist is going to create a gradient, right? Like, uh, you know, if we look at Quinn's arm, uh, just to the right of the flashlight, uh, there are little cash shadows on those two muscles. And nowadays you wouldn't ink that. The, the color artist would do like skin tone and then darker skin tone and then darker skin tone. And that's that can be quite lovely. Um, but, um, uh, you know, Vosberg is in his pencils, presumably like picking out places for D'Agostino uh, to ink and the D'Agostino is inking. And so there's all this communication from uh, from shape, from line, from design uh, and from poses.
2: Tim, great analysis. I mean, I, I think you also pick up on the fact that, you know, Mike, um, went on in his career to become a storyboard artist for the movies, and so I think the idea that comic book artists, a very easy translatable skill, if you're very good at it, as far as blocking, and I think cinema has an influence on just the way that that comic book artists lay things out, and the very good ones know how to block and tackle that as if it was laying out a movie, and and I think that's what we see in some of these GI Joe stories. That's that's just so fantastic. Is this is laid out like a movie? Is like I'm I'm joining it in the middle of a, a really. Uh, tense scene. And uh, I want to know what happens next. And I think the, you know, this, this is where the, the, the combination of those two really work, but I do think Bossberg was very good at sort of creating, uh, you know, storytelling through his panels. And despite the fact that there's so many characters in in GI Joe that you have to deal with, and I think some of my most memorable stories of the GI Joe storyline are from those, those issues in the teens, uh, where you had the Dr. Venom storyline and, um, you know, and then you have uh, uh, Baroness getting quote unquote killed and coming back to life, uh, so to speak. But those were to me, I thought those were the the real sort of highlight of both story wise and and just storytelling through the artwork uh, where those those issues that Bosberg was working on.
1: I, I have two other little comments on this um, as a contrast, So I, I like Trimpy's cover and I believe that's inked by Steve Mitchell. That I do correct. like that, I do like that cover. But in terms of what we were talking about with the previous slide, that cover doesn't ask a question. Right. And my favorite covers ask questions or promise something. right? And I look at this mm-hmm. splash page, um, and you know, if it was actually the cover, I think you'd lower uh, Quinn's arm with the flashlight so you could see more of Snake Eyes. And maybe it wouldn't be Dr. Venom, maybe it'd be like three Cobra soldiers. But the basics of it is there isn't really a story in the cover. Uh, it's, a, it's a great shot. But there is a story here, um, and so in terms of like satisfaction, when I look at this page, I'm I'm pulled in more quickly. And then, Mark, can you zoom into the middle um, just to go back to sort of the difference between uh, uh, drawing then and drawing now? If you drew someone holding a flashlight now in comics, you you would not ink that sort of inked halo. Uh, around it, right? You might draw like an upper line and a lower line for a cone, but you probably let the colorist do a lot of the work where the color would be a transparency, like a yellow transparency on top of snake eyes. Whereas here, uh, there is no place for the colorist to color any of snake eyes within that halo. Like it's gonna have to be white or light yellow or yellow.
2: Right. And Tim, I think the reason for the cover Again, you alluded to it. Mm. Another commercial that was used—that I remember that one being used—and I think they were introducing Destro, and yes, that was why it was important. Gotta sell the toy. Gotta sell the toy. <laughs> it was a commercial. It probably got made before the issue even got made, just so that they could have it out there. So uh,
1: yes, the cover. So Hama has talked about how he would have to write a a plot for an issue based on the cover that was going to be in the ad.
0: That's correct speaking of cov- uh, issues that have an advert uh, our next page did indeed have its own advert and is somewhat of a classic it is uh, it ranks up there in the echelons of everyone's favorite issue
2: so here it is I'm even wondering oh this one yes man I keep I guess subliminally I was thinking of like which ones had which ones were on TV. I hadn't even thought about (laughs) that when when, when I selected the images that we were going to look at today. Um, Yes, again, there's that great, my exact cover. um, Didn't match to the artist inside. The artist uh, inside was a guest artist, which was was Russ Heath. And, you know, folks may know Russ. He was really more known for his D.C. war artwork. Uh, He he did a lot of stuff like All-American Men of War. uh, But Russ Heath, known for, and also a lot of his... um, fantasy but some of like underwater stuff but a lot of his very detailed work so a different style Russ did go on to work in animation for G.I. Joe which uh, Tim you may know if that was before or after this I assume it was after but before it was before and maybe that's how he got the job but this was a fill-in you know Russ was asked to do sort of a fill-in issue right after the uh, sort of Vosberg's run was coming to an end and I won't won't go into the, the detailed story on this one here but focus in on just sort of the fact that Russ, I mean, when you look at this issue, uh, you know, I know we've talked about 21, we've talked about 26, which were both Hama drawn issues. For me, 24 is really the, the sort of the third, sort of most classic issue, if you want to look at it that way, um, just because it's so well drawn and drawn from somebody that had you know, really that experience of. Of drawing, in, I'm say a more classical style, and I think here you see even Destro looks a little bit more realistic than we've seen him in the past. Where, where Vossberg's rendition of Destro, Destro is, is I would say a little bit more cartoony. Here you see almost a, a very realistic face on Destro, and and the detail, and the especially the Baroness. I mean, Russ Heath, uh, you know, I, I got the pleasure of having him over to my house to sort of towards the end of his life. And uh, he 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 loved to draw women. Let's you know he was very much a ladies' man. Uh, really enjoyed sort of drawing the female figure and that. And I think he really enjoyed, as did frankly many artists. I think you know Ron Rudat, uh, Mike Vosberg all loved to draw the Baroness. And I think the 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 ones that were very good at drawing uh, female figures really took to the Baroness very well. And in twenty four, you, you just have some great you know some great images of the Baroness throughout, including on this page. Um, but what's at the end is uh you know, obviously the big reveal of uh Zartan and the very last panel. And I think if you look at the artwork, and I don't know if you can see it, is that Wild Weasel that's next to him? Uh, yes. Um, I believe that the images of Wild Weasel, if you can if you zoom in really really close, were actually redrawn. So again, another mm-hmm. thing where they may have either been working with the toy or they wanted to make sure that it was on model and change some things. I'm seeing.
1: You I'm see seeing a line that, around. Yeah, line see, around yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: that, I think he was cut out and pasted out. Pasted on to that particular drawing there. And I believe. And I, do I have the page? Let me see if I. Chuck, I, pull it off. No, <laughs> I, I can't do that. I'll send you my. Ass, <laughs> I'll
1: send you. Uh, I'll send you my. I have a. I have an early Transformers cover. Uh, and there was something comped onto it, and I, I pulled but it if off. You, if
2: you see this, this is the back of the art, so you can see that they actually taped something on. It looks like they okay. also taped something in the top panel there too. Yeah, it's it's the wild weasel panel at the very top.
1: Can you hold it up to the light and tell oh, us right. if you
2: see well, something through it? Can you see something? You can sort of see some of the images there, but I think it's just that they read they they cut out. If you look really closely, and I'll see, you can actually see that they cut out wild weasel and put a new wild <laughs> weasel image in there. So they wow. actually literally so, cut the paper, cut out the wild weasel, and then put a new version in there.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. It looks like there's it's at the uh, cutout at the top and also at the bottom of the page, too.
2: Um, yes. I think that I think it's in yeah. both. In, in, so, on the bottom, it looks like it's a paste over as opposed to okay. a complete cutout. It looks like they actually cut the paper oops, right here. Wow. And they, they actually just put a, a new piece of paper in there, where on this one, they just... They so pasted on, something new on top of it.
1: On the top, is it a cut under? Is that what's, is, is the is the new art on the bottom of the page and taped into place?
2: Is that what you're seeing? Uh, on the bottom of the page? Yeah, there's probably, again, if I shine a real light, I, there probably should be something underneath it. Although it looks like a stat. Okay. So it looks like they photostatted. Yeah, you know, so in the, that I'm, on I, the, it's not It doesn't... Doesn't play well on TV when I look at it that way, but right. <laughs> this, this part does look like it is a, a photo stat that they had done. So they may have enlarged it from another drawing and then just pasted that on. I don't, I don't, I'd have to do some more analysis to see if there's actual art underneath there and just a different look and feel to, to Wild Weasel. Yeah. But again, I think if you see that with Toy Art, whether it's G.I. Joe or Transformers, you know, I think as, you know, as it's getting towards deadline and, and they're trying to finalize the characters you know, when the artists are probably drawing the initial story, they don't necessarily have the reference that they need to draw the characters. So they typically, if you look at the pencils, they just sort of block in the character and say, when it's finalized, I'll go ahead and draw this in. Mm. Um, and I think that's um, what happened.
0: Yeah. It was on the, on the top of the page, when you turned it around it, there was a, there was a bit of paper under, underneath, which is, I guess is the other side of where that, um, uh, wild weasel had been cut out.
1: So I want to point out, um, Oh, Mark, go for
0: it. Um, I, was, I was going to, to ask as well if there's a story behind how, how you came, uh, came by this Ill, very um,
2: sought after uh, art. Sure. Uh, there, are, there are stories behind all it, these pieces. It um, may
0: not have been sought after when you got it. But
2: it <laughs> probably wasn't. You know. I, I remember being, uh, I had a friend of mine that was up at a show in San Francisco. And I think I was still living in, on the East Coast at the time. And he was at the show and I don't know if it was big wow or whatever the, the, the precursor to big wow show was, but Russ Heath was in attendance. And I think he had walked by Russ Heath's booth or Steve Wyatt, who was, was working with, with Russ and said, Hey, they've got the complete GI Joe 24 on Russ's table. Do you want to go ahead and buy it? And I think it was, uh, I I hate to quote numbers. Maybe it was $5,500 or something like that at the time for buying everything. And I was just like, Hey, how often do I get a chance to to buy you know a complete GI Joe story? And then also, I just I just respected the fact that it was coming directly from Russ, and that the money was going directly to Russ. And I think at the time, although that seems like probably a paltry sum today, that was probably a lot of money for GI Joe art back then. This was probably close to almost fifteen to twenty years ago. So, um, you know, at that time, GI Joe pages might have been going for a hundred. Uh, you know, hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars a piece, and that 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 would have been over two hundred dollars a page. So it was paying a bit of a premium, but you know, at the time, yeah, you know, I was also like, you know, Russ did such a great job on this particular issue, and you know, you can't really say no to it. So I I did pick it up. I had it in my collection for years. Um, they actually did a Russ Heath exhibit where I lent some pages in Europe, uh, where some of the pages were on exhibit over in Europe from this issue. Uh, but then another fellow collector, you know, I do get a, occasional request from folks to say Chuck, I know you've got a, a big GHO collection will you let me have a piece or sell me a piece and he was interested in buying this and I'd known him for a while and I said, all right I guess I, I guess I can let the complete book go but don't don't break up the book I, I don't want to you know I was like I, I'd like to keep it together if you if you do keep it and then I guess good or bad too, I, as soon as I did that frankly I regretted it um, but you know again it went to a good home but 2 years later he gave me a call and said look I'm I'm thinking about letting it go do you, do you want me to just sell it back to you and I was like absolutely so <laughs> that was that was a good occasion where I you know I did let something go but it did come back to me and uh I'm very happy that it came back to me and that I can keep this together so yeah.
1: <laughs> can you go back to the the actually okay well, let's let's start with the okay so um So one of the reasons why people love this issue, Diana Davis said so on a previous episode, is that it looks just like the show because Heath designed uh, all the major characters for the show and a lot of the vehicles and props. Um, At the same time, what this page doesn't have, and I know it's it's a, a quiet scene, it's just talking. What this page doesn't have is the same amount of, like, body twisting in space, physical energy and verve of, say, the previous slide with that Mike Vosberg uh, splash page. And Heath's artwork has um, a lightness to it, right? His, his surface qualities, his accuracy, uh, his textures are all extraordinary. But he's coming from a different place than the, like, Jack Kirby sort of, like, athletic action uh i mean this in a nice way like violence like the violence of physicality where someone isn't just like stepping they're like lunging through space and uh you can see it uh, uh even to some extent if you compare um this page to the cover and the sort of full um slide um something else that really um yeah like you know we have this this zek drawing and the the twisting of snake eye, uh, storm shadows. Ah uh, torso, the the twisting forward of Roadblock, right, and this 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 dynamic curl, the uh, contrails from uh, Cobra Commander's uh, claw, right. Um, this this image is really sort of wound tightly, and there's a leisureliness to how people um, stand. Like look at the look at um, Firefly's sort of surprise as he turns, right. There's a there's a gentle quality to it, and so. As much as I would have loved Heath to draw many, many more issues of GI Joe, um, uh, they his 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 style is so different than a, than a Zek um, that I I think there actually would have been uh, a little bit of a disconnect uh, with with um, compared to the covers. Even though Heath is like you know one of the preeminent combat artists of comics, um, something that I also love about this page is that. On that top panel, uh, road ball, uh, excuse me, uh, firefly and wild weasel are drawn in perspective, right? Like nowadays, mm-hmm. you would just draw that straight on, and then in Photoshop, you would skew that image into perspective. Uh, and it's possible that Heath did that, he drew it flat, and then he like turned it a little bit the, on that side and somehow traced that or photographed that and traced that, but um, he probably just drew it freehand in perspective because he was that good.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think Heath was great. I I do think this story, you know, there is some action that happens, but I, I remember at the beginning of the story, it's very much like, you know, Cobra commander just standing there talking. It sort of lets the, you know, it, it's a start and stop as far as the action on that. So there is a little bit more of standing around and letting the story be told by the words, mm. uh, rather than you know making the action do all the work in this case. Mm. So mm. I guess even as a storytelling for this particular issue was a little bit different, which is maybe why they wanted to get Heath to do it. It's interesting. I, I don't think I've ever really gotten the full story as to why you know Vosburg left after twenty three, and then and then ultimately they did the transition in twenty four, and then then had. Springer take over in twenty five uh, as the regular artist, but I can know, Springer. Sp- sorry, sorry, I
1: can speak to that very no. briefly. Farsberg uh, was ready to move on.
2: Yeah, uh, I I know mentally he was, but uh, obviously you know for the book he was a great artist for the book, frankly. So, uh, but but Springer, I know, had worked on you know with with him. He was one of the regular anchors on She Hulk and other things like that. So, from a succession perspective, Springer made a lot of sense to to bring on as as the uh, the follow on.
1: Uh, that's I guess that's a
0: that's a good point worth worth pointing out um as well that this I think is Zartan's first on-screen appearance so <laughs> on panel appearance so may as well just state that for the record wow first Zartan
2: that is yes okay. before 25
0: okay we have got a well a sort of An incredible uh, wealth of material here. So I'll push on to the uh, next one, (laughs) which is not to diminish how amazing that this page and issue is. Warning team. As the sands of time descend, temporal disruption has set in and it is here that we must leave our brave adventurers, Mark, Tim and Charles. Remain patient as we will pick up where we leave them in part two of this extended look at the original GI Joe art from the collection of Chuck Costas. Join us, if you dare.